and it seems like a lot of seats in the back are already taken, but there's a lot of seats up front. So if you want to sit down and be a little bit more comfortable, just mosey up this way and uh, you'll find a place to sit pretty readily. Um, real excited to kick off the afternoon session with Dr. Jonathan Lee. Um, John is an assistant professor at, at Harvard Medical School and at the Brigham Women's Hospital there. He trained in the laboratory of Dan Karitskis and really got involved in a number of the, what I would just call Boston patients who uh, had transplants but didn't quite make it over the hurdle of complete cure. And, but what he's gonna talk to us about today is advances toward a cure, uh, getting beyond N equal one, uh, two, and getting beyond N equals two. So John, welcome. Thanks, Mike, and I'm really thrilled to be here today. So I, I started making these slides uh, right before Croy. As you can see, I've had to update it a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit about this, uh, this new uh, cure case as well, which I think people might be interested in hearing about. So um, here are my uh, disclosures. And the learning objectives today will be defining mechanisms behind HIV persistence, describing some challenges, in achieving HIV eradication and remission, and then talk about some of the ongoing efforts for uh, strategies for inducing HIV remission. The talk uh, as a whole will be in four different uh, sections. Well, I'll give a very brief uh, overview of the HIV epidemic and why it is that HIV cure remains one of the priorities of uh, the research in the field. We'll talk about some of the mechanisms behind HIV persistence, uh, some of the success stories, uh, and then finally um, talk about some of the key uh, strategies for inducing HIV remission that is um, uh, currently uh, in research trials. So I think we are all well aware of uh, what a lifesaver uh, antiretroviral therapy uh, has been. This is data from UNAs showing the, the decline in HIV mortality in red and also HIV incidence in blue since the advent of combination antiretroviral therapy. Uh, we know that uh, currently there are 37 million people living with HIV and 22 million people on ART and uh, the number of individuals on ART is shown here on the graph with a little dot at the end here showing the expected numbers um, that will be on ART by 2020. But it's also important to remember that um, there are still 1.8 million new infections uh, every year as well as 1 million AIDS-related deaths every year as well. And I think you really have to remember and, and take into account these last two numbers when, um, when we talk about, you know, do we still need a cure? Why do we need um, a cure for uh, HIV? Uh, the WHO has come out with an uh, initiative called the 90-90-90 initiative where they um, uh, are trying to uh, get 90% of all individuals who are infected to be aware of their HIV status, 90% of those individuals to be on treatment, and then 90% of, of individuals on treatment to be virologically suppressed. And, and uh, that will, reaching these 90-90-90 objectives will get us a lot closer to um, bending the curve of the epidemic. The red part of each of these bar graphs actually shows where we are currently. And what you can see is that um, we are still quite a ways 
away from reaching this 90-90-90 goal that you know less than half of all individuals who are uh, living with HIV actually are on, on treatment and virologically uh, suppressed. And so why is it that we continue to have um, challenges getting people to start and also to um, maintain their interferol therapy? Well, I've listed um, just a, a few of the reasons uh, why we uh, still have trouble, um, starting from the kind of the bottom right here. You know, for most of the disease, um, our patients are asymptomatic, which A, can lead to some denial and also uh, challenges in diagnosing. That um, uh, tolerability of antiretroviral therapy can uh, be a challenge for some of our patients. Pill fatigue. You know, when we start our patients on treatment these days, they may end up needing to be on intratrial therapy for seven or eight decades of their life. And you can imagine how that can be challenging for, for patients. Drug-drug um, interactions, um, especially for some of our older patients, as more than half of the individuals um, infected with HIV in the U.S. are over the age of 50, and, and they'll continue to age um, going forward as well. Stigma and accessibility, uh, not only in the developing world, uh, but here domestically as well can be a challenge, especially in certain um, communities. Um, by life chaos, I'm talking about um, you know, family emergencies, travel, work, uh, and then substance abuse, children, adolescents, and then other um, difficult to reach and, and um, difficult to treat uh, populations. And in addition, there are complications of long, that's actually should say long-term HIV, uh, despite um, ART. Um, the, and that includes um, cognitive uh, dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, renal disease, metabolic dysfunction, cancer and bone uh, disease. And, uh, and overall, you know, our patients um, have oftentimes kind of, uh, will talk to me about some syndromes of accelerated aging that um, will be occurring despite ART and sometimes because of ART. And so let's talk a little bit about um, why it is that we can't get rid of um, HIV despite um, long-term treatment. Um, this is data from a, a long-term follow-up cohort of patients on ART. It, um, it shows what happens to the HIV reservoir and, uh, as reflected by levels of HIV DNA levels. The black line shows HIV DNA levels within the uh, PBMC or peripheral blood mononuclear cells. And then the red line shows um, the HIV DNA in CD4 cells. And the, um, the x-axis shows the number of years on ART. And what you can see is that after starting intratrial therapy, the HIV reservoir declines pretty dramatically in the first year, but that that decline really levels off um, thereafter and, and starts plateauing um, uh, around four years or so. And why is it that, um, that we're unable to fully clear the reservoir? I think to me, the most important reason uh, when you're looking at the HIV life cycle is that HIV integrates into the uh, host genome. And in addition, after it integrates into the host genome, it can actually become latent or silent, such that it's actually not producing uh, any RNA or protein or further antigens and makes it very challenging for the immune system to identify these cells that are actually infected. In addition, there are some other um, mechanisms that are contributing as well to HIV persistence. Um, for example, um, there, uh, at least there are some in the field who believe that there is, uh, continues to be active viral replication in individuals on uh, ART, especially within certain tissues or compartments where interventional therapy doesn't levels um, may be suboptimal. I, I will say that this is still a, a relatively controversial uh, 
kind of um, hypothesis and that most uh, researchers and, and, um, uh, and investigators in the field believe that there probably is not any active viral replication on fully suppressive enterotrial therapy. Uh, in addition, we, we know that HIV infects uh, CD4 cells, but a memory CD4 cells, and, and in addition, potentially myeloid progenitor cells and other cells that have prolonged cellular survival. Uh, and finally, HIV-infected um, uh, cells, including a lot of the CD4 cells, uh, undergo homeostatic or clonal proliferation, oftentimes due to the stimulation of certain antigens. And that's a natural immune response that you get, um, you're infected with the flu, and all your flu response of CD4 cells start expanding. Well, if some of those cells are HIV-infected, then those, um, that reservoir expands along with the, uh, the immune response as well. And in addition, there has now been increasing data that um, HIV integration into the host genome is not completely random. And that uh, HIV integration into genes that control cell cycle control uh, may end up um, also uh, predisposing some of these cells to clonal expansion. And then finally, I, I want to uh, say, don't forget about the tissues. The vast majority of the HIV-infected cells in the body are located not in the blood, but within secondary lymphoid uh, tissues, like the lymph nodes, within the gut um, as well. And within the um, lymph node, and I'm showing you, a, there's a diagram uh, of the lymph node on the, on the right here, that um, HIV is actually, uh, infected cells are located in, in, in certain specific regions. That it's important to note that the lymph node is not just a random kind of bag of cells, that it's a, a highly structured um, architecture uh, within this particular organ. And that um, in the lymph node, there are certain regions called the B-cell follicles, where you're more likely to find HIV-infected cells. Now, these B-cell follicles are where B-cells mature, but they also are regions that are in some ways an immune sanctuary or privileged site, that HIV-specific CD8 cells have trouble getting into these B-cell follicles, potentially leading to uh, a um, um, kind of persistence of some of these HIV-infected cells within these regions of the, uh, of the lymph node. And so uh, um, despite um, these uh, mechanisms of persistence, you know, is HIV cure possible? Well, we do already have at least one pretty solid example of that. And this individual, as many of you know, is Timothy uh, Ray Brown. And uh, before I talk a little bit about how he was able to be cured, just wanted to take a step back and, and um, uh, just mention that HIV requires not only the CD4 receptor, to get into a cell, but it requires also a co-receptor to get into a cell, uh, including CCR5. And that, uh, and this is a schematic here showing that um, uh, the CD4 receptor, as well as in red, as well as the CCR5 co-receptor in green, all binding, needing to bind to the um, HIV virion before HIV can then attach change its conformation and then fuse with the host cell membrane. But there are individuals out there who are naturally resistant to HIV infection. These individuals have a certain deletion within their CCR5 gene called the CCR5 delta 32 is a 32 base pair deletion such that they don't have the function, a functioning CCR5. And these individuals, the ones who are homozygous have both copies of this deletion are functionally resistant to almost all um, HIV uh, infection. So now let's go back to talking about uh, Timothy uh, Brown. 
So uh, he unfortunately um, was diagnosed with uh, acute myeloid leukemia and then ended up needing to get an allogeneic stem cell transplantation. So uh, that includes having a conditioning chemotherapy as well as whole body radiation. Uh, to kill uh, all of his leukemic cells as well as just to deplete his immune cells as a whole. He then received a, a donor stem cell infusion and for uh, Timothy Brown, uh, the lucky part of it was that A, he had a lot of HLA uh, matches um, and uh, B, that uh, he had an oncologist who was you know, uh, smart enough to, to specifically look for individuals who were HLH matched donors who also had uh, CCR5 Delta 32 homozygous um, uh, cells. And it took them about 60 different um, tries um, of sequencing these uh, CCR5 genes before they finally found one person, one donor, who um, was a HLA match and also had the CCR5 Delta 32 um, deletion. And so he received the donor stem cell infusion from that uh, donor. And then over time, the donor cells then uh, will take over, um, both because the host cells are dying, but also the donor cells will kill the host cells through a graft versus host disease um, response. And so this uh, next uh, slide shows his, um, his uh, viral load. And um, what you can see here is that, so initially he was on just on chemotherapy and actually had interrupted his ART for a bit. And so his viral load did rebound up to about 10 million copies. And then he restarted ART and his viral load came down and then he received his first stem cell transplant. Uh, unfortunately, his AML relapsed. He ended up getting a second stem cell transplant and it's now been uh, more than 10 years and he has remained HIV free. The, um, just in the last month, in, in, in this month, um, both presented at Croy, but also now published um, in Nature, is a second case. Uh, this is an individual uh, from London, so, so known as the London uh, patient, who um, uh, had lymphoma and ended up also receiving a um, allogeneic stem cell transplant with donor cells that had this 32 base pair that were homozygous for this 32 base pair uh, deletion. And here you see his um, viral loads are in blue and his CD4 counts are in red. Uh, this individual also had a, a slight rebound in virus during a, tr a treatment interruption and then was suppressed on intratrial therapy. The dotted line is when he received the um, stem cell transplant. Um, this individual was on ART for the next year and a half, and then right around it says day 510, stopped antiretroviral therapy and has now been um, off antiretroviral therapy for 18 uh, months. So for, for quite a bit of, um, uh, of time. And so why don't we try to you know, compare and contrast uh, the uh, Berlin and London uh, patients, right? So for the Berlin patient or Timothy Brown, um, so he was actually heterozygous um, initially, even before the transplant for the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation, whereas the London patient is homozygous for wild type CCR5. Now, we don't think that this actually made a difference because all of his original host cells were replaced, but just uh, one, one uh, little difference between the two of them. That, the, um, that Timothy Brown uh, had acute myelogenous leukemia, whereas the London patient had Hodgkin's lymphoma. The uh, Berlin patient required two different stem cell transplants, whereas the London patient had one. Now, because Timothy Brown uh, had leukemia, he had a much more intensive uh, 
regimen of full intensity conditioning as well as whole body radiation, whereas the London patient did not. London patient had lymphoma and then did not receive any radiation and had a reduced intensity conditioning. And then there was also some differences in how their T cells were depleted. So what really is the take home message for the London patient? So I, I, I would say that the, that the most important parts of the London patient um, of this story is that it shows that the Timothy Brown and the Berlin patient, it, it was not a one-off, that it, it is reproducible and that, um, uh, that uh, potentially, you know, um, that the uh, highly kind of toxic regimen, uh, conditioning and whole body radiation regimen that the Berlin patient, Timothy Brown, received may not be necessary. That you can potentially use a, a, a gentler um, form of, um, of uh, um, kind of conditioning and without radiation and still achieve uh, the same uh, result. And, and, um, uh, and also in the end, it, it, it probably shows the importance of the, uh, the CCR5 Delta 32 um, uh, homozygous deleted uh, donor cells as well. So what we know is that um, uh, despite you know you know long-term enteroviral therapy for most of our um, patients, once they stop treatment, uh, their virus is going to uh, rebound. Um, but the question is, um, has been, you know, how quickly does this happen? And so this is your, um, your first uh, fun poll here. So in the average patient in your clinic, how quickly does HIV return to detectable levels in the blood after ART is discontinued? Is it less than 48 hours? Is it two to four days? Is it two to four weeks? Is it two to four months, or is it, does it take more than four months before you can detect HIV in the blood by commercial assays after they stop therapy? Okay, so most people think it's two to four weeks, and so let me show you some of this uh, data. So we looked at um, a number of ACE clinical trials group treatment interruption uh, studies and included individuals who are on combination intratrial therapy who uh, were virologically suppressed, and then we looked at a couple different uh, uh, viral rebound thresholds at viral loads of 200 copies and also 1,000 copies. And uh, this is really the main finding here. So the y-axis shows the percent of individuals who remain virologically suppressed. The x-axis shows the number of weeks post-treatment eruption. And indeed, uh, as most of you responded, most uh, patients will rebound uh, between two to and four weeks. And so um, let's, um, so, but when people, you know, talk about um, an HIV cure, um, they uh, still think of uh, a sterilizing cure such that, uh, you know, like uh, Timothy Ray Brown. Um, but as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, uh, these um, uh, stem cell transplants are highly toxic. And there is actually a, a relatively high rate of death and mortality and morbidity uh, in uh, these individuals. And really, it's only reserved for patients who really require it due to um, uh, malignancies. And a, 
a, um, another kind of definition of HIV cure, which was alluded to earlier today, is something called a functional cure, or um, what many of us are saying is sustained virologic remission. And there are a couple different examples of those individuals, including HIV controllers, who we talked, just talked about recently, and also these HIV post-treatment controllers, or uh, PTCs. And one of the important things when, when we're thinking about um, post-treatment controllers and PTCs is that, you know, just to emphasize the point that when patients stop intraoral therapy, the timing of HIV rebound is not uniform. That even though most individuals will rebound between two and four weeks, there's actually quite a bit of variation. I'm just showing you data here from four different participants of these ACE clinical trials group studies and what their viral loads look like after they interrupted, including one individual here who um, turned out to be a post-treatment controller, a PTC, who never rebounded um, at all. And the, one of the best uh, and earliest descriptions of post-treatment controllers came from France. This is a paper published uh, about uh, uh, six years ago uh, from this uh, Visconti study in which they described 14 different individuals who were all treated during early infection and uh, were able to stop therapy and maintain virologic suppression. Here I'm showing you uh, the graphs of two of those individuals where their viral loads are in blue and, and also in red. Um, their CD4 counts are in black in that black line. Um, the time that they were on ART is in a shaded area and then when they're off ART is um, past the shaded area. You can see that these individuals are able to maintain low level viremia or near complete viral suppression uh, despite stopping intranormal therapy and they can do that for, for a number of years. And so now let's, let's go to the final part of the talk, which is um, what are some of the ongoing uh, strategies for inducing uh, HIV uh, remission? And how do we transform our patients into these post-treatment uh, controllers? Now, there, are, there is a long list of strategies that are being pursued. And I'm decided to just focus on four strategies that um, have either kind of gone into clinical studies or are close to going to clinical studies and, and have some of the, um, um, have been thought to be some of the more promising approaches. So as I, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, uh, individuals who naturally have the CCR5 Delta 32 uh, deletion, uh, those individuals are relatively rare. Even in the population where they're most commonly found, which are Northern Europeans, only 1% of the population are homozygous for the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. So you can imagine that for most of our patients, even the ones who, you know, who require stem cell transplant, it is exceedingly challenging to find someone who is both an HLA match and also to have um, the CCR5 Delta 32 homozygous mutations. So the first um, section, the first strategy I'll talk about is what happened what happens when you have patients who receive a bone marrow transplantation but with wild-type CCR5? Right, that's much more common. Uh, in addition, does early HIV treatment lead to a greater chance of post-treatment control? What about the strategy called shock and kill, which I'll talk more about? And then finally, uh, gene therapy. So um, this is a um, data that was published a few years ago from um, uh, two participants, two patients at the Dana-Farber in Boston, who both of them had lymphoma and um, received allogeneic stem cell transplant with donors who had wild-type CCR5. And what I show here on the, the top line here are the, the viral loads, um, both by the clinical viral load test as well as by this ultra-sensitive single copy assay. Um, the bottom here shows what happened to their um, HIV uh, DNA levels and, and the arrows. Uh, show when they received the donor lymphocyte infusion as well as when 
the, they had 100% donor lymphocyte chimerism. You can see that the HIV DNA levels were really um, suppressed and then became undetectable after they received uh, the transplant. And, and in total, for both of these individuals, we ended up looking through 150 million CD4 cells and looked at HIV DNA levels, looked at viral outgrowth assays, and could not find any HIV DNA after the transplantation had, had been uh, completed. So the questions, uh, the next uh, question I have for you guys is, um, what happens if we you know, take these two patients who we can't find any HIV in their bodies um, and uh, did a treatment interruption? Would it have led to a sterilizing cure? Um, would it have led to a, a significant delay in HIV rebound, but maybe some eventual uh, rebound down the line or um, potentially rapid HIV rebound similar to what is um, seen in, uh, in just patients on ART that I showed? Touching warm, reaching out, touching me, touching me. Back at home at Fenway Park. All right, great. You guys are on top of things. So um, here's what happened, right? So patient A ended up stopping therapy and then um, was able to maintain electric suppression until uh, three months after um, a treatment eruption and then rebounded. Uh, now and then uh, patient B was able to maintain suppression actually for eight months and then rebounded. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, most patients will rebound between two and four weeks. So having a delay in HIV rebound to three to eight months is, you know, it does show that when you can deplete the HIV reservoir, you will have a delay in rebound, but it did not lead to a sterilizing uh, cure. And in fact, both of these individuals ended up having acute retroviral rebound syndrome with fevers, malaise, uh, similar to what we see in acute HIV because their immune system were actually functionally naive to HIV. So they, you know, in, in essence, had acute HIV. So what about early HIV treatment, right? So um, this um, is data um, from the uh, Thai group um, who, where they treated um, individuals with early HIV and measured levels of HIV DNA, um, both total HIV DNA, which is kind of the, the, the solid line, um, integrated HIV DNA, which is the dotted line, and then the lighter line is, is um, uh, episomal DNA. So the red line are the reservoir size and individuals who were started on ART uh, early, and then the blue lines are those who were not. So, and what you can see is that, uh, of course, early intrauteral therapy will dramatically decrease HIV reservoir size and actually to a level that's below that seen in chronic um, infection. If you start someone on treatment during chronic infection, you won't get to the same level as you do with, um, with these individuals who are treated during early uh, infection. Uh, but uh, what uh, has not been clear up to now is whether or not this might lead more preferentially to post-treatment control. Now we know that, um, as I mentioned, that the Visconti cohort individuals were all treated during early infection, but they did not have a comparison group of chronic treated individuals. And so what we ended up doing was a, um, uh, an analysis of 14 different uh, clinical studies around North America, treatment interruption studies, primary infection studies, and we were able to identify 67 of these post-treatment controllers, including individuals who were treated during early infection and individuals who were treated um, during chronic HIV infection. 
And here is an example of a post-treatment controller from our group. The um, blue are, are the viral loads, the red are the CD4 counts, the gray area is when uh, they were on enterotrial therapy and the, you can see that this individual started ART during early infection. The viral load is over a million copies and then was suppressed on ART and then stopped and was able to keep their virus relatively suppressed with a couple little blips here um, for more than two years. And so we looked at what is the frequency of post-treatment control um, between those who are treated during early versus chronic infection. We saw something you know, fairly, uh, fairly dramatic here that we saw a significantly higher frequency of post-treatment control with early ART initiation that 13% of individuals who were started during early um, HIV met our definition of post-treatment controllers versus only 4% of those who were diagnosed, who were uh, treated during chronic infection. Showing that early ART initiation has benefits for our patients for their health, has benefits in terms of um, decreasing risk of transmission, but it also may lower the barrier or the threshold for um, HIV remission as well. So what about shock and kill? I had said earlier that um, a lot of the HIV infected cells in the body are latent in that they're not producing RNA or protein. And the shock and kill strategy is a way to, to uh, reawaken the um, this latently infected cells by giving them something called a latency reversing agent that can stimulate HIV um, RNA and protein production. Uh, and then in addition, the kill part is either a therapeutic vaccine or an antibody that can then boost HIV specific immunity. And, and that the hope there is that then those cells that are now actively producing HIV will get will be identified and killed by the boosted immune system. And all of this is done under the cover of antiretroviral therapy such that um, um, despite producing more virus, you're not actually infecting any new cells. And so I just want to give one example of, of um, a promising strategy. Um, this is actually a, a, a study that was just published in Nature a few months ago from Dan Baruch's group in, uh, in Boston. Um, they, uh, this is actually a monkey um, study um, where the latency reversing agent that they use is something called a toll-like receptor 7 agonist, TLR7 agonist. And then the reservoir clearing agent they use as a broadly neutralizing antibody, PGT-121, which you have heard um, a little bit about earlier from Melanie. Um, they uh, took uh, 44 of these monkeys, randomized them to four groups, either sham, which is just placebo, um, having the TLR7 alone, having the um, neutralizing antibody alone, or both. And then they ended up going, undergoing a treatment eruption. So here's the data from the sham group, uh, which you can see every, all the monkey uh, had viral rebound, and the red line shows kind of the median levels. Here's what you see in the TLR7, the latency reversing agent alone, where 10 out of 11 rebounded. And then you have the neutralizing, broadly neutralizing antibody alone, in which nine out of 11 rebounded. And then, but when you combine both of those therapies, you only get six out of 11 um, who rebounded. And um, you can see that the viral dynamics there are, are significantly altered. Again, monkey studies, there's still a long way to go, but this has already gone into uh, phase one clinical studies. And then finally, what about gene therapy? You know, I've already talked about how important it is um, that um, having CCR5 modified cells might be for, um, for the, both the Berlin and the London patient. Well, there are individuals um, uh, who have done clinical trials um, in, in a much broader population by using things like the zinc finger nucleases, which can induce breaks in certain genes. In this case, they've targeted it to CCR5 uh, and then uh, to disrupt that particular gene. There's a company that had um, done a couple different clinical trials uh, called Sangamo, where they, their strategy is to take cells from the patient, um, 
modify the cells in, in the lab and then reinfuse the cells back into the patients. And, and uh, they did one study, which was published in the New England Journal, um, and uh, in just a, a small number of individuals. And you can see that there was a treatment, this is the viral loads. There's a treatment interruption component, which is right in the middle there, that's, that's bordered by the arrows and, the, and, the, and the, um, the shaded area. You can see that everyone rebounded, but there was one individual in green um, who was able to then suppress their virus before the treatment eruption ended, before they restarted ART. That individual turned out to be someone who was already heterozygous for the CCR5 Delta 32, right? And, and, and what they think happening is that this particular strategy is still not all that efficient in modifying the cells and, 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 and um, causing the CCR5 deletions, but that if you potentially have individuals who are already heterozygous, for that deletion that um, you are more, much more likely to be able to, um, to delete both copies if one copy is already modified. And so there's now continues to be some ongoing studies and he presented some data at uh, CROI um, that showed that you can modify some of their viral rebound kinetics potentially more, um, more impressively in these heterozygous uh, patients. But there's a lot more work that is uh, ongoing in the field. And, and um, um, again, this is a final kind of slide, data slide here that, that you guys have probably all heard about this, um, this uproar over these uh, Chinese scientists who modified, um, genetically modified babies, right? So what, what happened, this is from uh, Washington Post, is that this, uh, during an in vitro fertilization step, they um, ended up modifying the, um, the embryo to delete both copies of CCR5 to, to protect the, the, the baby and up being twins. From, um, from HIV in the future, and this caused a huge uproar for ethical reasons. And, and, and yes, I would say that there's a lot of problems here with, with what um, this group did. Uh, one issue here is that there was no medical need, right? This, this, um, this baby did not have a life-threatening condition without which you know they would not have survived you know with without um, a gene genetic modification that there are obviously other ways to uh, prevent hiv other than gene modification um, second that actually if you modify ccr5 uh, it doesn't fully protect um, uh, patients from uh, hiv infection as, as hiv can use an alternative co-receptor cxcr4 uh, that there are off-target effects of these genetic modifications that you might not know for years and even decades. And finally, they modified the germline, which means that any modifications then can be passed on to their kids as well. So you're potentially, you know, have lots of downstream unintended uh, consequences. So finally, the cure strategy store scorecard, right? So CCR5 Delta 32 donor cells, yes, I, I do give it two thumbs up here, but only for those who absolutely need it for um, their cancers. CCR5 wild type donor cells did not work. Early HIV treatment, I'll give it one thumbs up. Uh, uh, and then shock and kill and gene therapy, you know, I, it, I think the jury's still out here. And then I'll end with this uh, quote from Timothy Brown that I know in my heart and soul that I will not be the only one cured of AIDS. Hope is alive in me. All right, happy to take questions. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I thought it was shock and awe, and then the, after the Chinese scientist was accused of something unethical, it was shock and outrage or yeah. something. Yeah. So um, it says something like treat post-therapy controllers. So I think they sort of want to know um, what about those folks and what is it that's helping them stay suppressed? Yeah, so post-treatment controllers, how are they able to do it? I, 
we do not know right now. You know, first of all, these individuals are, are very difficult to identify because we've been telling our patients, don't stop therapy, don't stop therapy, right? So you're not going to really find these patients too commonly in the, in the clinical setting. Most of these patients that we've identified were through clinical trials of treatment interruption trials where they're trying to test, you know, um, potentially some other strategy or early treatment. And uh, so there's only, there's been less than 100 of these individuals identified worldwide. Um, but there has been a more intensive um, study now trying to figure out what makes them tick. They do not seem to have um, an enrichment of some of these protective HLA alleles that, po that um, elite controllers have, like B27 and B57. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a different mechanism. And, yeah. you know, I did show that they're more likely to be, to be identified in individuals who started ART during early HIV treatment. And my personal hypothesis is that early HIV treatment, um, A, it uh, limits the diversity of the virus, and B, it protects the immune system. And um, in addition, you know, we know that the HIV, how quickly HIV um, replicates and mutates, that if you can potentially stop that early, allow the immune system to catch up, that you're, you might be able to give, give the immune system a head start. How about that? Right. right. So you just stop the cat and mouse game. Um, so we have somebody you've treated them, you stop, their virus rebounds, then <clears throat> later, is there, is there risk of resistant virus to what you had stopped? In other words, as the, as the drug levels are dropping, uh, have you seen that? Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it was more common in some of the older studies, um, especially studies that included NNRTIs. Um, and actually, in the two Boston uh, patients, um, one of them um, developed a K103N mutation during the treatment interruption in the setting of not being fully adherent um, to his uh, ART regimen. Uh, but uh, that risk can be mitigated um, by um, first switching those individuals who are on, on NNRTIs to a uh, uh, integrase inhibitor-based regimen or protease inhibitor-based regimen where you really don't see resistance mutations um, after treatment eruption. And a lot of the problems with NNRTIs and treatment eruption is that they have a much longer half-life in addition to um, a low barrier to resistance, right? So then you're getting functional monotherapy for a certain period of time in a drug that is, has a low barrier. So that's why we, for a lot of our, our current ongoing studies, we switch them to a different drug before they interrupt. And this is more about just adherence. So if you have somebody, is there a certain number of doses that can be missed without viral load rebound? Is there a threshold that you can think about that uh, would be a good rule of thumb? It probably depends on the drug. It depends on the drug, you know. Um, I, 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 no, I, I, I don't have a rule of thumb here, you know. I mean, I, as, as all of you do, I, I always tell my patients to, you know, be as adherent, 100% adherence, you know, uh, is ideal. But uh, uh, there, are, there are differences. Um, I think David Banksberg had, has looked yeah. at that in the past, showing that, um, you know, certain drugs, you know, some of the PIs and inducers, you are a little bit more forgiving. But I, I don't know of any solid kind of percentages I can give people on that. Right. This is a question about uh, vetalizumab, uh, the alpha-4, yeah. beta-7 right, right, right. antagonist. Right. Um, the question is, whatever happened to that? Right. So um, alpha-4, beta-7 is a gut homing uh, receptor. And um, it was uh, in, a, in a trial, and, and vetalizumab is an um, antibody against it. And uh, that was supposed to... Um, potentially help uh, prevent HIV infection of, um, of kind of gut cells, which is where a lot of the HIV-induced immune depletion occurs. And in some of the monkey, early, early monkey studies, they saw that some of these monkeys were able to be 
in HIV remission, post treatment controllers, I guess, um, when they were given vedolizumab. But um, you know, if I had a dollar for every monkey study or any <laughs> mouse study that was, you know, I, I'd be a rich man. And yeah, that one on right yeah. on on um, on repeat, unfortunately, that has not been confirmed mm. at this point. And uh, you know, some of that might be that. Um, when HIV buds from um, a cell, it takes some of the receptors from that cell with it on, in its yes. own envelope. Mm -hmm. And so um, some of the antibody uh, activity may be just direct antiviral activity and binds directly to the viruses themselves. And also there might be something a little bit odd about the monkeys that were used in that initial uh, study as well. But Yeah, it is. You make a great point, though, about translating between animal studies and human studies. And we got to do the animal studies to get yeah. some ideas. But... Yeah, it's really good. So thanks. That was a wonderful review of a very complicated topic. Well done. Right. Sure. Thanks. Okay.